You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast, number 175, 25 away from 200, which is kind of neat. I'm David Grubbs. I'll be your host for this week. I'm an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. With me this week, like last week, is the man who is most angry at Tolkien, Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you this fine afternoon, sir? I'm pretty good. I edited that episode myself last night, and I was pretty pleased with my performance, I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) Admiral Haterade was was up in there. My favorite Uh, thing, I didn't notice this when we recorded, David, is uh, I I repeatedly called it the Silly Marillion. Yes, yes, you did. And each time that I did, you can hear this very quiet sigh coming from Houston. <laughs> go, go back and listen, listeners. Uh, it is, uh, it is quiet, but but present. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I think I remember doing that. Also with me is the the happy chuckle you hear in the background. Uh, Nathan Gilmore, associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you, sir? I am recording from home because I'm home with a sick ah. kid. So. Uh, it's been a long day, but it's good to be on the podcast. Well, uh, good wishes sent your way because you know I know what that's I know what that's about. So, the the taking care of sick kids at home. Not that I have some kind of deep insight into your personal situation. That's... <laughs> he made your child sick. Yes, yes. See, this is one of those <laughs> distinctions between the categorical and the specific. Yeah, yes. That we're going to be that's... discussing later today. Yes. So, yeah. Speaking of things we're discussing today, we're dealing in this episode with an essay from Dorothy Sayers, who's famous for a number of reasons, which some of which we'll probably get into. An essay entitled The Lost Tools of Learning, which has a kind of, I guess, declaration of independence or constitution or whatever kind of founding document you want to cite relationship to a certain strand of Christian classical schooling, whether at home or in a more traditional setting. We don't plan to talk a lot about homeschooling or classical schooling or those things categorically. We'd uh, like to focus on Sayers and her ideas about what a good education looks like. So here goes. I'll start with you, Nathan. Dorothy Sayers begins this essay uh, by deprecating her qualifications <laughs> to mm-hmm. have any opinion about the education of children in general. But is she really that unqualified? Did she have other expertise or experience that uh, she brings to this essay in fruitful ways? 
I don't know a whole lot about her biography, but the little bit I've picked up says that she did spend a brief uh, span of time after she graduated from Oxford teaching, so apparently mm. she did have some experience in the classroom before she fled from the same. Uh, <laughs> when she does introduce her own qualifications or lack thereof, she says that education, because it is part of a culture, it's part of a society, it's part of a community, is something that people should be able to weigh in on even if they don't have personal experience doing so. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, obviously the, these are not the days when you could Google Dorothy Sayers and find out whether, in fact, she had spent any time in the classroom, but she does seem to be heading off the objection that someone who actually spent time educating children in a classroom wouldn't say such things but simply by declaring education to be common ground, so to speak. Um, now as the, as the question goes, does that bar her from speaking intelligently about education? We're going to be talking about the things that resonate with us and the things we want to critique a little bit later. I'll just say sort of as an opening volley before I lateral to Michael that in a lot of places in this essay, she seems to be universalizing her own precocious childhood sometimes to the <laughs> neglect of personalities that aren't as given to learning. Uh, you know, for those of you out there who who read some Plato, uh, Dorothy Sayers is beyond question uh, guardian material for your platonic city. Uh, <laughs> not everyone is. So I'm going to be talking about that probably a fair bit today. But before I shoot the entire question set, Michael, what would you say about her qualifications? Um, well, one of the points she's making here is that the the system she is putting forth, the system she's borrowing from the Middle Ages, rather than teaching you particular subjects or prior to teaching you particular subjects, teaches you how to think. And as such, it allows you to say things outside of your field. So one of the bugaboos of this essay is over-specialization. So the fact that she's not qualified may make her more qualified in a certain mm. way. It's the Ben Carson effect. <laughs> I think she probably has a better claim on it. <laughs> yes. I, I want to get back to something Nathan was just saying. He's going to derail it. I'm going to uh, continue to derail it. I couldn't think of a appropriate metaphor. <laughs> um, one of the one of the things one of the phenomena of public education. One one of the reasons that I suspect that programs like this can't be put into place is because the number of people who are being educated is much broader, much larger. Mm-hmm. And and you have people from a variety of backgrounds, a variety of intelligence levels, a variety of – what was the phrase you used, Nathan? Capacities to learn? Mm-hmm. Or and desire to learn for that desire, matter. Yeah, and so, so you, I, I – I, I think that one of the reasons we see education as having gone downhill is precisely because we've broadened it to something approaching universality. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so I, I wonder if I wonder if the reason the homeschoolers have picked this up and the public school folks haven't isn't so much because the demon of constructivism has possessed uh, educational theorists uh, than it is that that it's just not as feasible in a broad ranging student populace as it is in a single household or a 300 student private school. Hmm. Well, that's a fair point. And we'll, I guess we'll have to see how that develops as we go through here. 
Yeah, we're out of order. I know. I'm sorry, but I would have. <laughs> That's okay. I would have forgotten the point if I yes, waited. Yes, Michael and I are already behaving badly. <laughs> well, I was never right. taught these things. Well, before we get to her suggested solution for the contemporary educational woes, which you know, spoiler, she wants us to return to the medieval trivium. She launches into a series of rhetorical questions, which are designed to counter any kind of knee-jerk reactions her readers have against the idea of the medieval in general. So I'm going to pass this to you, Michael. What what problems is she getting at in her rhetorical questions? And do you find her questions to be compelling or relevant or other adjectives that one might use? She. She pretty much goes full Andy Rooney, which is another <laughs> timely cultural reference from Dr. Farmer, as I always say to my classes. It, it's, it's, it's very much, have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed how our society is not as good as societies in days past? Have you ever noticed that we have very high literacy rates and yet everybody is too stupid to see their way through advertising and propaganda. Have you ever noticed that reasonably educated adults don't bother defining their terms in debates? Have you ever noticed that people can't recognize a good argument from a bad argument? Yeah, it's compelling because how could it not be? The way the, the way the questions are, are phrased, it's very difficult to disagree with her. Um, and, for that matter, it's not untrue, right? I, I, we, we all know examples, and if you don't know examples, she'll provide them for you, mm-hmm. of, of popular thinkers who are not actually using logical argumentation and who are not defining their terms well and who are essentially producing propaganda rather than argument. But as for whether it's a legitimate argument for her to make, I, I don't know if I'm the one – I don't know if I'm specialized enough to answer that question. <laughs> David, you're the medievalist. You, you have the most contact with people who would have been through the trivium. Do you think this is a, a relatively speaking modern phenomenon? Do you think it's a phenomenon from the Renaissance on? Or or is it that she's engaging in, this, in, in some antiquarian feeling here? And and is is wistful for the good old days of the plague and uh, the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> I know the plague is later. And you and you, but but you, do you know what I'm saying? I mean, right? Is it is it accurate that we're so much worse at these things than the average medieval person would have been? Well, I think the right answer to that is a very Gilmorean yes and no. <laughs> And you've already raised the the things that I would cite. First, she is right that I think the folks who were trained in the medieval trivium, which we'll get to, spoilers still, mm-hmm. are more insightful on these questions. The, the the folks who had this medieval education in the tri- in the trivium were more insightful in the ways that she wishes moderns were. Mm-hmm. But the difference that both of you have brought out is that medieval education was focused on a minority of those who were selected often by class and wealth, but sometimes also by talent within the monastic system that the, the medievals that she's comparing these moderns to it's, it's not exactly uh, it's it's apples and oranges, or even further afield than that. Um, mm-hmm. 
the average, I imagine the average medieval commoner was as afflicted by and as susceptible to propaganda as the modern. Mm-hmm. Or would have been if she could read. Or would have been. But it or if there was mass media to, to allow her not to read. Right. Or it, it would have been the propagandistic qualities in whatever your, lake, your latest cru, uh, Crusades-based Troubadour song was or whatever. Mm. Right, you know. right. So all, all, all of all that to say this, which I've found I actually say a lot, and one of my classes has actually started making fun of me for saying all that to say this. <laughs> I think it's a fair cop in terms of the problem that she identifies in the modern era and that an application of the things she talks about does seem to present more insightful, educated people in the Middle Ages. But the problem of mass education is is something that is notable by its absence in this essay. Yeah, she seems singularly uninterested in mass education. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that brings up an interesting historical question because one problem that arises when you're dealing with antiquity is that so little of their culture is extant. Mm. So, you know, there were more literate people in 4th century Athens than Plato and Aristotle. Oh. Uh, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> I mean... Well, Phaedrus could read. But to a large extent... Their texts are what we've got left, and I realize there are other texts as well, listeners. Please don't write in saying that we have more than their texts. I'm I'm being hyperbolic to make a point here. By <laughs> contrast, in 2015, what you've got is a glut of textual production. Everyone is writing. A greater hunk of the human species is producing text in 2015 than in any other point in mm-hmm. the course of the human species. So the problem is not archaeological to where you're finding trying to find a scarce repository of text but it is uh, a matter of library science it is culling through all of the material that we generate to try to find the good stuff so do we have a complete lack of insightful people in 2015 well no i mean go listen to christian humanist profiles we've got some very insightful thinkers going on there the world has david grubbs's the world has michael farmer's but the world also has half a billion Facebook meme posters. And, you know, <laughs> that makes people. a difference. So you're saying that we just don't know about the people in Athens who were really ticked off about red cups at Starbucks. <laughs> well, what, well what? actually, we do know about those people. They killed Socrates. Yeah, there oh, you yeah. go. There there you go. To his argument. <laughs> right. I understand it. So so it's not that our Socrates is buried under a pile of rubble in a clay jar waiting for us to discover the scrolls. Our Socrates is somewhere out there drowning in a red cup. <laughs> I'm so tired of hearing about this non by the time by the time this episode airs, everybody's going to have forgotten it. Unless unless the next civil war starts over it. <laughs> Although it'll be a civil war between one guy who made a YouTube clip against everyone else, so it should, yeah, should be a true. short one. No actual human beings are upset about the red cups. Anyway. Well, yeah, cultural archaeologist in 2525. This was recorded in a time in which people were maybe angry about red cups, but more people were angry about the possibility that people were angry about red cups. But then there were other people who were angry at the people who were angry. 
But just to make a historicist point, it was an interesting moment. This is a phenomenon that would be unintelligible <laughs> in an era where the tools of textual production were not so democratized. Right. True. True enough. Anyway, sorry, I had so, to get historic historicist there for a second. <laughs> Well, yeah, and the, and the thing is, however snobby the three of us are, and we're snobby to various yeah. levels, none of us can come out against mass education because, in effect, this podcast is mass education. Right. Mm-hmm. Or at least it's not possible without mass educational tools. Well, there's certainly mass. I don't know about the education part. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, we need to talk about the trivium because otherwise we're just being trivial. What are the trivium in medieval education, Nathan? And how are they different in Sayer's judgment from a, a more modern approach that talks about teaching subjects? The way that Sayers frames the trivium, and I really like this approach, and one of the things I was going to wait to say later, but I'm going to go ahead and say it now, is that if you shift her age range from you know ages 10 to 16 to ages 18 to 22, I think mm. this is a wonderful model for a Christian college. Uh, mm. Her approach to the trivium is that you begin with a set of practices, and I would say even a set of virtues, that allow someone to gain access to and to participate within the realms of human learning. The way that that differs from subjects is that the way that we teach subjects, and this goes, I think, at the college level, it applies just as well as it does to the K-12 through level, is that far too often we give students sort of crystallized lists of vocabulary terms and only when, you know, well, I, I shouldn't say only when, I mean just when they get to the point where they might actually deploy those terms to do some real thinking, we move them to the next subject. So mm. what Sayers is largely concerned with, and I share this concern, is that far too often we do not teach students to be physicists but we teach them a set of equations to memorize. We don't teach them to be literary critics or even readers of literature, but we make them memorize character names. We do not teach them to be psychologists, but we teach them a list of neuroses. Uh, Hmm. And, you know, I think that this is a, a result, it's a function of the explosion of knowledge with the advent of the Enlightenment and even more than that, the German university, where the focus of the university as an institution shifted from the transmission of a body of knowledge from generation to generation to the production of knowledge that didn't exist before we just now published it. So Mm. since our knowledge has become so vast, our approach far too often, and this was true in 1947, and I think it's far too true dang near 70 years later, our focus is on giving students a sort of glancing awareness of several fields of knowledge without asking them to become practitioners in a few of them. And like I said, I mean, as much as I've griped already in the brief time we've been recording, this vision of education I definitely share. I mean, Michael, I mean, can you get on board with this if, if we get past some of our objections? Yeah, and especially, as you say, on the college level. Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, I'm not sure it's in- incredibly feasible. I, I mean, that, that's what she says, right? The, the the sentence, we cannot turn back. You have to make sure you define what you, we mean by cannot. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Um, that it's just, you know, you're going to meet a great deal of resistance. The problem is I'm not sure I'm powerful enough to push past that resistance. <laughs> but, yeah, it'd be great. I mean, if we're talking like an ideal republic uh-huh. uh, type, of, <laughs> type of way. But yeah. I, mean, I, I do want to point out the German university is frequently the enemy on this podcast. <laughs> and I don't think the German university is a bad thing as long as it doesn't become the paradigm for all institutions of learning. Right. And, and unfortunately, you know, because the German university is efficient and, and because efficiency is the God virtue of our society, that is exactly mm-hmm. what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Outcomes assessment, man. <laughs> Before we dive into Sayer's education thought experiment, we ought to say something about her Jeremiah before that. So in what ways had the young people in Sayer's day been made defenseless against uh, what she calls a, quote, incessant battery of words, words, words? Michael? Well, the idea here is in being in being taught the things Nathan just described and being taught to to read and write and being taught broad structures of particular disciplines but not being taught the skeleton that makes all disciplines possible uh young people are paradoxically more capable of being taken in by shoddy arguments by advertisement by propaganda than they would have been if they just never learned to read and write at all although she talks about film and radio making literacy uh, unnecessary for propaganda, and, and that's probably true. So, so the idea here is structural knowledge of particular specialized fields is a house of cards, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it, it cannot sustain a human life necessary to stand up against the forces that threaten human flourishing. Uh, you know, consumerism and propaganda of various sorts being being the two main ones she's interested in here. Mm-hmm. And so if if what we're what we're teaching students is is uh he, here are here are uh, here's a load of facts about your discipline, here's how you run an experiment, here's how you uh here's how you write about a book, maybe even here's English grammar. Mm-hmm. Uh you're you're essentially setting them up to be consumers and that makes sense because what you're talking about is essentially a consumerist vision of education whereby mm. you buy what you want and you can discard all the rest mm-hmm. i mean we're back into another jeremiah for the humanities i know but mm. this is an early this is an early blast in the jeremiah for the humanities oh sure sure <laughs> it, it's what's interesting is that incessant battery of words 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 describes our world so much better than it describes hers Mm-hmm. I mean, she had words, but we have just text everywhere. And, and, and I mean, we've talked about the democratization that is the Internet. And again, the three of us have to be very careful criticizing that because our project here is only possible because of the democratization of the Internet. We, we have a few more credentials than some people, but it's not like it's not like we're sponsored by some sort of credential granting institution. <laughs> um, but the democratization of the Internet means – not that there's no difference between what a professional says and what a amateur says, because there is a difference. I mean, there's a difference between being published in 
first things on the one hand and slate on the other and being published on a private blog, right? And there's a difference mm-hmm. between being published on a private blog and being published on Facebook, but there's not that much difference. Mm-hmm. Whereas, whereas before the private blog and, and Facebook didn't really exist, there was no way to get that out there for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think in, in some ways the, the, Incessant barrage of words, word, or bare battery, excuse me, of of words, words, words is much worse today than it ever was, and and the result is we're much more consumerist, even than we were in 1947. Mm-hmm. And I would say, following up with that, that the actual approach to learning subjects, as she calls them, contributes to that because when you try to oppose, you know, one of the prevailing God terms of, and I'm, I'm pulling on Richard Weaver and Kenneth Burke there, obviously, of our own moment, the response more often than not is not really a structured syllogistic or topical argument so much as it is a catalog of, of ah, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm reticent to call them, you know, um, I guess associations would be about the best term. Uh, so, you know, if you if you make a claim that, you know, challenges the su- the supremacy of individual choice, then, you know, the response is not an argument, but it is, you know, Nazis, communists, you know, it's, you know, it's <laughs> all these associations. If you try to, you know, say that, you know, maybe Richard Dawkins, you know, argument isn't good. Well, you know, do you rely on your theology for penicillin and jet airliners and all these other things? And. It, it strikes me that, you know, Sayers is right that, you know, the structure of how we learn things gets mirrored in the way that we hold forth publicly. I won't even call it argument. <laughs> well, and, and another point she makes is that we tend, w- without this training, we tend to respond emotionally rather than rationally. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the ascendancy of identity politics makes that clear because I, I, I think nine times out of ten identity politics is chiefly about somebody feeling something rather than any kind of reason debate and the stuff going on right now at Yale and Missouri, while, you know, I, I don't want to make statements against uh, ethnic minority students. I, I think it's clear that a lot of the, the rhetoric that's arising from there is rhetoric without dialectic to mm. use the trivium terms. Yeah. Mm. Well, let's begin our thought experiment. After imagining the practical conditions of her imaginary school, which <laughs> she does recognize that this is this is a fantasy, so mm. you know, Sayers does a little quick and dirty developmental and educational psychology, which maps the trivium onto three nicely alliterating stages of childhood. So, I'm going to pitch this one to you, Nathan. What are the stages? What is she attempting to show about her educational scheme when she does this work? And as a father, an educator, and the husband of a school teacher, who I imagine has some opinions about these things, mm-hmm. do you find this persuasive? Well, first of all, listeners, if you heard me furiously tapping away at keys, it's so that I could find this passage so I don't mm-hmm. misquote it. Uh, the three developmental stages that are relevant, uh, Dorothy Sayers calls the Paul Parrot, the Pert, and the Poetic. Uh, very literate, very very nice. So one of the stages is the one that delights in simply accumulating new facts. Uh, if you've been around young children, of course, they 
love to tell you things that they have learned and, you know, even uh, correct your previous misconceptions. You know, actually a, uh, you know, a, a cat isn't a dog because cats have kittens and dogs have puppies. And you say, oh, that's very good, very smart, very smart. Um, this is the stage that, uh, you know, learns songs very easily, learns languages very easily, uh, just really sort of absorbs the world. A uh, lot of fun to be around. The pert, uh, the middle stage, is the one that she describes as, you know, alternately uh, difficult and obnoxious. Uh, and this <laughs> is the stage uh, that I call the, you know, save it for law school kids stage. Uh, <laughs> this is the one, if you've ever worked with kids, especially in church settings, and this is where I'm drawing a lot of my experience here, uh, this is the one where... They insist not only that you acknowledge their uh, snitchery, but also that they make public arguments for why their snitchery is justified. Uh, you know, it tends to evaporate when they are the object rather than the agent of the, st of the snitchery. But at any rate, the pert uh, is very, very interested in making a public case. And then the poetic, um, I guess she just didn't want to, you know, use puberty as her third alliterative P. Um, <laughs> is the stage where you start to gain some capacity for ambiguity. Uh, the certainty, the certitude of the pert stage where you know what's right and you want to make a public statement about it gives way to self-doubt and to a sense that the world might extend beyond what we can grasp with our own categories. Uh, and so these three stages, uh, she maps you know, pretty nicely onto the three trivia. Uh, you know, the Paul Parrott, she says that, you know, this is the stage where grammar makes the most sense because the person who is in this stage will take just as much delight in amo, amat, amas, and I just flipped those, my apologies, Latin students out there, uh, as they would in nursery rhymes. The pert stage, uh, you give them some tools for making public arguments, and, you know, they don't become any more obnoxious, they just become more intelligently so. <laughs> and the poetic stage, you teach them rhetoric, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. It's it's not rhetoric as I teach it. It's not rhetoric as we would recognize it in a 21st century college setting. But it has more to do with a study and an appreciation of literature. Uh, you know, literature, among the many other things that literature does, gives us a sense of the transcendent, of the possibility of reality beyond what we can grasp. As far as how this how this uh, you know strikes me as persuasive, and how it you know strikes Mary as persuasive, this is actually something that uh, Mary and I dispute about a fair bit because I tend to be, uh, in terms of you know cognitive psychology, more of a gestalt thinker than Mary is. Uh, she's very much in the Dorothy Sayers mold. She says that it's just you know insanity that students in sixth grade have not memorized their multiplication tables out to the twelves and yet we expect them to do fractions and I say well if they don't know what fractions are or if, if they don't know what those multiplication tables are for what reason do they have to learn them and we go back and forth on this and it's a long conversation <laughs> all of that said I think that Sayers is right that our current educational schema tends to skip over the grammar, in other words, the learning of, I guess, atomized nuggets of information right on into the rhetorical 
as she describes it. And honestly, our rhetorical, our sense of the rhetorical tends to be a very truncated sense of the rhetorical that, you know, pretty much begins and ends with self-expression to use the, to use the phrase that prevails. Mm. So I, once again, I find myself, you know, even though I'm going to contest the universality of this scheme, because I think that, you know, her, her claim that everyone in the middle ages could do all this by the time they were 16 is, you know, another symptom of what I've complained about with, you know, GK Chesterton's democracy of the dead. It's only a democracy of people who could write. And that really wasn't that many people. Uh, likewise, I mean, you know, Sayers is saying that, you know, everyone in this medieval system who wrote anything could do all of these things better than most moderns. Well, there's a whole lot more modern people reading and writing than there were medieval people reading and writing. Uh, <laughs> you know, of course, they're going to be as a group more elite because they were the elite. Uh, so huh. when I think about this in terms of a Christian college and a, an institution that has the mission that a Christian college has, I think it's dynamite. Let's go Dorothy Sayers. When you try to extend that to a modern democracy's universal public education, I think you need for that to be one element within a larger picture. So, mm -hmm. Michael, what, what do you think? Am I, am I as full of beans as I am most days? I think we can all agree that the goal of public education should be to pass standardized tests. Yeah! <laughs> huh. <laughs> Yeah, say what you will. This isn't that. Right. <laughs> well, shall we get into the trivium? We haven't much time left. Let's do it. Well, Sayers begins with the grammar stage. Um, though in her in her scheme, grammar means more than just what I, I think in the, they call in school these days language arts. Here she introduces some of the most distinctive features of her plan, which, well, leads to language. So why start children not just with grammar, but with Latin grammar? And how can she move from that to a grammar of geography and a grammar of math? Because that sounds weird to me. Michael? Well, you, you start with Latin grammar because Latin, she says, is the root of all the Teutonic, uh, Teutonic and presumably Romance languages. German does not have anything in common with Latin, does it? I think... I think what – I'm, I'm going to try to be as charitable as I possibly can because that looks like a mistake to me too. I'm wondering if she means something like Latin is a good language for understanding Indo-European roots. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it's not the – Well, Latin, and, and also just consider, consider her statement historically. I, I, by the way, I feel very weird being the strongest defender of Sayers on this point. <laughs> uh, but think about it historically. I mean, the folks who are writing the first grammars of the Germanic languages are Latin-educated monks. That's a fair point. The people who Let's... actually write grammars of even Hebrew and Arabic tend to be Latin-educated medieval scholars. So, you know, in, in some sense, even though, you know, part of the education in the, the grammar of Teutonic languages is to note their differences from Latin, Historically, it started from an awareness of Latin and worked outward from there. Latin is responsible for so many evils in English grammar, though. <laughs> well, that's because we don't do it very well. We don't. We don't. We don't. Viva la différence, man. Well, it's, yeah, it's because we we assume that the Teutonic languages are should be similar in structure to Latin, which they're not and shouldn't be. <laughs> in, anyway, um, 
she she wants Latin because she says it's a relatively simple language, which is another confusing claim to me. Mm-hmm. I studied Latin in high school, and it is it seems to me quite a bit more complicated than English. Well, it is when when you when you get into what she says. She says it needs to be an inflected language, and she 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 contrasts inflected and and um, languages that communicate their grammar through inflection of individual words and ones that use syntax. Mm-hmm. And she wants to focus on something that can in which the grammar is part of the stuff that you can memorize, not yeah. the stuff that requires detailed analysis. Because she says the grammatical structure of an uninflected language is far too analytical to be tackled by anyone without previous practice in dialectic, except, you know, all the children who learn uninflected languages. Well, but they do it accidentally. And when would you try to teach them about it on purpose, they seldom do it well. Right. Well, I don't know. The, the, the research <laughs> I've read says that a child under five can learn like eight languages simultaneously. Right, but can they analyze their grammar is my point. Yeah, all right. And is, her, and is her point. Yeah, I mean, I get that English grammar is probably more complicated than Latin grammar in the sense that English grammar doesn't really have rules. <laughs> English grammar is just a series of exceptions in Latin grammar. <laughs> so, but it's, it's complex, sure, but the, the rules, I believe, are fairly standard. Mm-hmm. She, By the way, she says you don't have to do Latin. You could do Russian. <laughs> or you could do ancient Greek, and I, th- I think she's picked those two just so that people will go with Latin after all, so they don't have to learn a new alphabet. Oh, never mind then. I'll just do Latin. Imagine <laughs> <laughs> learning Russian at uh, at five years old. I guess if you were Russian, you, you would already know it. Um, she also wants she wants you to use this dead language so that you can you can practice your. Uh, you can practice your memory on something without necessarily analyzing it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, she doesn't want you to learn Latin the way they learned Latin in the Middle Ages, meaning she doesn't want you to memorize like the stories of the the gods in Latin while she wants you to learn that stuff, which I, I suppose is kind of a grammar for human culture. Mm-hmm. She She says it's fine if you do that in English or whatever your language of origin is. All of this is foundational, right? I mean, if you hadn't said a grammar of geography, I would have thought a geography of grammar, because that's really what we're talking about here. Um, mm-hmm. All of the, the grammar of these various disciplines is kind of laying out the scope of where they go and what the what the landscape looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that that's going to be very important before you can make any kind of argument. It also, a grammar of science, for example, is just the memorization of facts. I, I, I forget the sort of beetle she talks about. The devil's the, the devil's coach mm-hmm. beetle. The, yeah. It looks like it'll sting you, but it doesn't actually sting you, which, by the way, yes, it does. I looked it up because I wasn't sure what a devil's coach was. <laughs> um, so apparently she didn't memorize that very well. It doesn't sting, it bites, but, you know, to, to my mind, there's not much difference. Anyway, memorizing <laughs> memorizing those sorts of facts allows you to have something to make an argument about once you get to dialectic. Mm. Yeah. I'll leave anything out there, Nathan. As far as the grammar goes... What she's mainly concerned with here is, at least as I was kind of hearing her, is learning what kinds of questions uh, you can answer given any sort of vocabulary. And I think that that is 
often what gets lost uh, when we have students, you know, taking final exams where they just have to reproduce eight word definitions of a whole mess of terms. They tend not to spend a whole lot of time asking, you know, what kind of question is this that we're answering in the first place? And right. that's, that's something about her approach that I greatly appreciated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I realized that, that's when I'm, I started having take-home essay exams. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Students don't like it, and I don't like grading them, but they don't forget the information right afterwards. It's true. Well, moving on from grammar to dialectic, I'm guessing that Sayer's sketch of the dialectic stage of her, uh, of her scheme probably warmed your heart, Nathan. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, these days, though, the STEM subjects and the uh, are often promoted as fostering the same kinds of mental exercise and discipline which Sayers recommends dialectic for. So, do you see these approaches as comparable? Can we just sort of cash in the dialectic and take algebra instead, or is something lost? I'm, we... I'm a big proponent of both and in this respect, and this honestly okay. is one of the reasons why I don't like the fact that she entirely neglects the quadrivium in this whole equation. Uh, (laughs) You know, I I am, in this respect, in a lot of respects, I'm not a convinced uh, Platonist in that I think that a strong mathematical education does prepare you intellectually, and and I would say spiritually, I'll go go that far in the Platonist direction, uh, to regard realities that are beyond sensory experience uh, as important and even as organizing our sensory experiences. Mm. And for that reason, I think that a mathematical education and a an education in physics and chemistry and biology is immensely important. And whenever my English majors gripe about them, they can pretty well expect a tongue lashing from me. Me too. That said, Good. I think that a neglect of philosophy uh, which is what you know she calls dialectic, and of course that's also what Plato and Aristotle call dialectic, leads us to a place that I talked about earlier where we have a tendency to catalog apparent accomplishments of science uh, in place of arguing for why we should do science in the first place. And so I, I, I tend to revert to my own students uh, those science majors I've taught who have taken philosophy and theology classes with me, uh, almost to a person they will say that they appreciate what they're doing in science more now that they have thought harder about what kinds of questions they are answering and why those questions are worth answering in the first place. So uh, both and is my approach here. Michael, what do you say? Yeah, that makes sense to me. And she she herself carves out this space for mathematics, right? Mathematics, mm-hmm. history, theology, all of these things are part of the the dialectic um, stage because they give you something to argue about. Mm-hmm. And she also says that you know, let them argue about seemingly trivial things from their from their own lives. She talks about this argument between small boys about uh, uh, a rainstorm that only wets half of Main Street. And, and whether they can reasonably say that it rained in town that day, if it only rained in half the town. And that's a stupid argument. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. It's not important. But it does allow them to kind of cut their teeth on what argument looks like. And so it's a stupid argument, but it's not one that reason has nothing to say about. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
And and by the way, reading that section, I mean, reminds me of fond memories I have of, of messing with kids, usually in church settings, because they will, you know, come to me and say, well, you know, the uh, tomato is a fruit, not a vegetable. And, you know, just automatically I say, well, how do you know that? <laughs> and, you know, it'll lead to this long dialectic about, you know, whether everything with seeds is a fruit or everything with sugar is a fruit and so on and so forth. And it, it, it's fun stuff to do, especially with kids who don't have a whole lot of experience with it because they, they come away, first of all, thinking that I'm a crazy old man, which is true. Uh, but also they come away, you know, posing questions just of the sort that Sayers is talking about there, except again, in my own experience, not every child has that natural inclination. Sometimes it takes uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi to introduce them to it. <laughs> right. Well, one point I do think that uh, she she doesn't really dwell on this, but it occurred to me is very frequently students um, coming up in, our, in schooling are faced with the distinguish between fact and, a, and opinion mm-hmm. um, issue in terms of um, critical thinking. And if your critical thinking exercise has been largely shaped by mathematics and not by dialectic, mm-hmm. it, it seems to me that our culture's notion of what fits fact and what fits opinion tends to chart more with those kinds of things that ultimately become math questions. Right. Math and science questions. And those things that track with opinion end up becoming more like dialectic. And I wonder, I mean, obviously I've not done a study about this, but I wonder the degree to which that current division of fact and opinion based on um, whether that current division of fact and opinion has something to do with the ways that STEM has come to represent training and critical thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's definitely a bit of the unteaching that I have to do and that I have to spend most of my effort on in a mm-hmm. freshman writing class is that, you know, I, I tell them, you know, I don't care about opinion. I don't care about your opinion. You shouldn't care about my opinion. Opinion is me telling you what I think. Argument is you convincing me to think differently because it discloses the truth better. I always say conclusions instead of opinions. What conclusions have you come to? Good. You know what, though? Um, The fact-opinion dichotomy is perfect for standardized testing. Oh, absolutely, yeah. That that is what this is, but the the problem is it it drives us deeper into consumerism because if facts are things nobody can dispute and opinions are just – Things you don't have to prove, and those are the two categories. You know, personal yeah. choice becomes autonomous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, that leads us to the rhetorical stage. Sayers has the least to say about it, but not, I think, because she thinks it's unimportant. It, she clearly thinks it's important. So why is it, and this is her quote, difficult to map out a general syllabus for a study of rhetoric and why is that, in her view, uh, kind of a wonderful thing? Well, because you're moving outward. I mean, you, you begin grammar by learning what she hopes is one language, right? She wants you just to learn Latin. Dialectic, you have a series of subjects to choose from and a, a, probably an unlimited number of questions to ask. Rhetoric is really kind of wide open because it's going to be personalized and the student has learned enough grammar and dialectic to be able to direct him or herself to a greater degree. 
Mm-hmm. So where you go with this depends on your own interests, what you plan on doing with your life. Um, she talks about how it's different if the student is going to university or not. But, um, yeah, so it's it's open because the liberal arts are supposed to free you. And so it makes sense that as you go through, you become freer and freer, and then the topics become freer and freer. Mm-hmm. And after that, that's where the quadrivium would come in. She does say, you know, there's a few guidelines. Um, you, it, when teaching literature, you need to uh, uh, you need to focus on appreciation rather than destructive criticism. Although I wish she would say what destructive criticism means. Mm. And uh, and writing should focus on self-expression. Although now we have a grounding for that self-expression that we don't necessarily have under the current system. Mm-hmm. Mm. I'll agree with that. Nathan? I would also Other say than agreeing her, with that? <laughs> I, I, I would say that her approach to rhetoric displays some of the vestigial ah, gentleman's culture, if you will. And I realize that Dorothy Sayers is a woman, so listeners don't write in telling me that. Um, that we saw uh, a while ago when we talked about Orwell's essay, uh, Politics in the English Language. Uh, she can say without elaboration that the aim of rhetoric is to speak and write elegantly. Um, and that just strikes me as, again, the vestiges of a literate culture that hasn't phased out to the extent that it has in 2015. One of the things that I think is part of a, I, I would call it a literary education more than a rhetorical education uh, in 2015 for us that it wouldn't have been for Sayers or Orwell or, you know, folks of that generation more generally is that our conversation about what counts as good writing in the first place, my sense is has to be a whole lot more deliberate simply Mm -hmm. because, I mean, you know, at least partly because of that fact opinion distinction that Michael was tracing out earlier. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I, I did like her. I did like her her general vision of rhetoric, though. I, I love the the valuing of it, not as on one hand, you know. And here's the part where you learn how to say flowery things to dress up your you know five cent thoughts and five dollar words, or even the here's a series of tropes to say what you want to say more persuasively but as a kind of individuation the using of the using of rhetoric and the using of the mastery of of the different subjects and your ability to express your ideas in those subjects as a kind of academic coming of age uh, i thought that was really cool mm-hmm. well having walked through her scheme what else in this essay is worth discussing michael I got a question, and I have to go teach a class right now, so I'm going to ask the question and then listen next week when this goes live to hear how you guys answer it. Um, I agree this would be a cool system. Uh, I agree it would be great if I could get my college to adapt it and do two full years of this sort of thing. Uh, That's not going to happen, which means I get them for one semester in English 131. Mm-hmm. What do you guys think I can do to that class to to proceed on a Sayersian uh, <laughs> trivium model of education in that one class? Well, I'll take first crack at that. I think that the focus of freshman writing always has to be in front of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 
purpose of that class is always at the core of my planning for that class and and that's you know one of the general principles of curriculum design I realize so I might be saying something utterly banal but if I conceive of that class as first and foremost an introduction to the structures of thought mm-hmm. I teach it much differently than if I approach it as you know a sort of finishing school for people who already know how to think And when I teach it the former way, my students tend to benefit far more insofar as they have some structures for reasoning that they can carry forward to what they do in future classes. Whereas, again, if it is a, you know, more of an etiquette class, you know, learning not to fart at the dinner table, (laughs) they tend to finish whatever it is I assign them and then forget that they ever took English 101. Uh, well, how would you answer his question, David? I like the way that you've started to to talk about that. But when, when he asked the question, I immediately started thinking, how would I structure? Um, what would the syllabus look like? Mm-hmm. And I, I'd I'd need to continue to thinking to think about this. But some sort of uh, some sort of three essay scheme in which the first essay is sort of recapitulating a grammar stage. A second is recapitulating a dialectic stage. The third recapitulating a rhetoric stage. Um, not entirely sure how that would look, but Mm -hmm. that might be, that might be worth doing even if you can't completely recapture, um, the fact that they, they might not have gotten dialectic or, or thought about learning, in these ways up to this point to at least say, here's a model of thinking about the learning endeavor and we're going mm-hmm. to demo it in this class. And, and they then have, uh, the freedom and the, you know, perhaps the tools of learning to then apply that more broadly. Well, that's interesting because my own approach would be not to assign three discrete assignments for the three stages, but to try mm-hmm. to, work the students through any given assignment in stages roughly analogous to these. So I'm thinking of, you know, sort of Uh, pre-writing, scaffolding sorts of assignments, getting down sort of the grammar of what they're after, and then spending some time, you know, drafting and really focusing on the structure of what they're doing. And then towards the end, and and really, I mean, if any of my former students are listening right now, hopefully you recognize this is the way I actually teach writing. And then only at the end, focusing on things like, naming your agents in these subjects of clauses and, you know, other sorts of word choice matters that really have to do with, you know, serving your reader well more than they have to do with the structure of the thought. Mm. So, I, I, you know, having this conversation, David, I, you know, I realized that, you know, I, I read this essay for the first time probably 10 years ago, and the way that I tend to teach freshman writing to be sure, but other writing assignments well, I think fits maps pretty well onto what Sayers is talking about here. That makes good sense. I actually like that better. I renege. I will not write that syllabus. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might, but, you know, just build the uh, three, build the trivium into each endeavor. Right. Uh, right. But, yeah, I mean, that, and, you know, like I said, this is, when I teach especially, and, and right now I've got on the mind a literary theory class that I'm teaching for the first time in the spring, the, the scribbles that I have in my notebook so far, and of course I'm going to do most of the work planning that syllabus once final exams are over and I have a couple weeks to 
really kind of dig in on that without this semester's classes on the mind really have to do with, okay, how can I get my students to the point where they can do that rhetorical thing, where they can actually strike out and engage with particular inquiries on their own to an extent that they can't do right now. Mm. And like I said, you know, this is one of the places where curriculum design in educational theory uh, actually doesn't disagree very much with what Sayers is after here. Cool. Well, we've answered Michael's question. What would you? What else in this essay would you consider worth bringing up? Well, I've been nodding to it all through the all through the recording session here. I think that Sayers' vision is really quite good. I think that the great fault is that she is far too ready to assume that any educational system worth anything will be able to make everyone a prodigy by age sixteen. Mm. Um, and like Michael said, and I, I really didn't pay enough attention to this when I was reading, she does seem to have a much more elitist educational system in mind. She doesn't seem to have the education of citizens in a democracy as her main goal. Uh, I think that when you're talking about citizen educating citizens for a democracy, you have to bring cats like John Dewey into this conversation and really talk about how the culture of the public school and the culture of the town and the culture of the elected elected officials and their governmental structures and all of those structures relate together in a way that she, because this is a short essay, doesn't spend a whole lot of time on. That mm -hmm. said, I think that for folks like me who are, are big readers of, of Stan Hauerwas and of John Milbank and folks like that, this kind of vision is really nice for thinking about a Christian education because it does engage with the human being existentially rather than focusing on the acquisition of knowledge nuggets. And mm. for my money, I mean, that's what makes this essay worth returning to 10 years later. Mm. So, David, I mean, won't you have the last word here and then you can take us home? Sure. Well, I'm going to kind of digest at least what I'm what I'm hearing you and Michael saying and uh, agree that I think it would be a mistake to take this essay which Sayers certainly wouldn't have certainly didn't intend it this way and take it to be some kind of a silver bullet right uh, that this is you know this is the educational key and this you know once we do it this way all things are fixed I, I don't know that she, I, I don't think she meant it that way. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, she thinks that the fact that the trivium isn't here has resulted in a number of great ills. But nor is she presenting this essay as some kind of complete theory of education with all of the kinks and details worked out. Right. Also, I th would also concede that the Middle Ages doesn't have a model of mass education and the issue of how to scale this up would be, it would be a real issue. Uh, so one of the, one of the things that she just sort of grants at the beginning of her, of her uh, thought experiment is we will have a building and staff large enough to allow our classes to be small enough for adequate handling. Mm -hmm. 
and just makes it so, which given that this is a thought experiment, certainly she has that freedom. But in actual life, we don't have the freedom to just immediately make all the parents docile yeah. and <laughs> and the educational authorities, you know, we can't just sort of cash in the existing ones and draw a new hand, you know, you know, she, it's, it's all very well to kind of and stack the deck. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's all very well to kind of have these as the opening premises of a thought experiment. Mm-hmm. They just get messier when you when you start talking about real life. Right. Um, and Latin Latin is a wonderful language and for the pragmatic reasons that she lists, it's it's helpful, but it's also not magic. This is none of this is none of this is magical. I think it's generally a really good idea for reasons that she cites, but it's not magical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is I guess the main thing that I would want to say. So I think this is a very helpful essay. Um, certainly the trivium has been long neglected and needs to be returned to. And And listeners who are subscribing on iTunes, I strongly recommend that you go to the show notes and mm. have a read. I mean, it, it shouldn't take you more than an hour to read through this essay carefully. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a fun little piece. It really is. It's really good. And one thing that we haven't noted is, I don't know about you, Nathan, but to me, Dorothy Sayers is a very delightful and engaging reader that even when she's saying things that I don't entirely agree with, I still f- feel happy to listen to her. <laughs> because she she presents herself well she's she's a delightful writer and e- even when i'm quibbling i'm still i'm still enjoying the the presentation the performance of it she's she's just delightful right she's of that uh generation of english writers who seem to uh speak think and live in witty one-liners yes oh this is <laughs> full of quotable quotes this yes is very very good stuff well that is all we have time for in this particular episode, dear listener. What do we need to be looking forward to for our next episode, Nathan? Well, as the semester draws to a close, and since all three of us are college professors, we're going to uh, ease up on the degree of difficulty points for a couple weeks, and we're going to start that <laughs> next week uh, with a listener feedback episode. So if you have been writing to us emails, Facebook messages, comments on the blog, uh, you may just hear your words read next time you hear the Christian Humanist Podcast. Excellent. Well, I look forward to that. In the meanwhile, dear listeners, you probably won't have time to take advantage of that because by the time this post, we'll already be recording within a matter of hours the feedback episode. But nonetheless, I hope you have written on <laughs> and we can talk to you. If you want to get other in... feedback episodes. Yeah, certainly. If you want to get in on the next feedback episode, yes. send us an email at the Christian Humanist at Gmail. I mean, I hope this isn't the last one we ever do. <laughs> Anyhow, if you want to send us an email, send it to the Christian Humanist at gmail.com. You can post on the show notes to this uh, episode when they post on our blog at ChristianHumanist.org. You can also uh, comment on our Facebook page. You can also like us on iTunes and give us a rating and give us a review. A nice one, please. Thank you. 
In the meanwhile, I'm David Grubbs on behalf of the present Nathan Gilmore and the absent Michael Farmer, wishing you all the grandest of weeks. Christian Humanist Podcast is is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen uh, Philippic. Our intern is Amberly Copeland. Copeland. (laughs) Copeland. Dang it. Well... I'll leave you with Martin Luther's advice. Let your sin be strong. Let your faith be stronger.